0: 720 WGN. A very happy Saturday afternoon, everyone. This is Let's Get Legal. We're powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Joined today by Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Let me just say, it's always a fun time when Mike Leonard comes on the line. He's joining us. And uh, Mike, how are you doing today? John, doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm still feeling a buzz from our conversation we had last time you were on when you uh, got us our, Judge Paul Meyer, uh from the federal bench at the Northern District of Illinois. Uh, but it's just me and you today, so we've got a, we've got a big
1: shoes to fill. Yeah, we're going to have to do something to make it interesting. That's why we had the judge on to kind of take the pressure off us. So yeah. I don't know what your solution is, but yeah. <laughs> we'll try. Well, let's
0: start here because... Oh, it's been a couple weeks now since uh, Congressman, former state Congress uh, Representative Luis Arroyo, sentenced to five years in federal prison for trying to bribe a state senator to help with legislation expanding the shadowy world of sweepstakes gambling machines. And when I read what he did, like, sure, okay, and that he was convicted, okay, found guilty, five years kind of jumped out to me. Did it jump out to you?
1: Yeah, I thought it was it was a shockingly high sentence. I mean, it was definitely unexpected for all the parties involved. You know, you're looking at a case where the U.S. government, the federal prosecutors, they were looking at and they were asking for a substantially less sentence than that. So it really was a bit bit off the charts, especially for you know the conduct that's at issue. And um, you know, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what the judge's rationale for why he went so hard. But clearly, there's this undercurrent in federal court in Chicago that, you know, the political corruption crimes don't seem to stop. So, you know, perhaps it was one of those messages, but it was, it was a surprising message in light of what the sentencing guidelines were and what the what the prosecutors themselves are asking for.
0: Right, because, and I said found guilty, but he entered a blind guilty plea, right? I mean, so this was a plea.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you, you know, as you know, in federal court, there's only two ways to go. You're either going to plead guilty or go to trial and try to you know, get a not guilty jury verdict, or if you get a guilty jury jury verdict, then you're going to sentencing. So, yeah, he pled, and I think he probably had every expectation, as his attorneys did, that the sentencing was going to go much better than that, and the sentence was going to be much lower than that. So I think, I think everyone's a little bit surprised at the result.
0: U.S. District Judge Steven Seeger railed against his, quote, dirty conduct, and he said you were a corruption super spreader. Now, I I didn't follow every single detail of this case, so I just want to preface it by saying that. Uh, But I just wonder sometimes, I know judges have to kind of take into account or I don't know if they should, the idea of what else is happening in politics. Look, look, Chicago and Illinois politics has a terrible reputation. I feel like someone's got to set examples. I think a lot of people rally behind that, right? Like, we got to set an example, which is all well and good. But, I mean, judges at the end of the day also are really supposed to look at the details of the specific case. I imagine that's kind of a hard, hard thing for a judge to do, right, where you're just trying to look at an individual while you're also seeing a giant scope of problem that goes across the whole city and state.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a very tough balance. I mean, I think one of the interesting things Judge Ballmeyer said when she was on your show a couple of weeks ago was how difficult sentencings are and how that, you know, something that sticks with her, and that's so hard to make some of these decisions. But one of the valid considerations that judges are allowed to consider and are supposed to consider is the concept of deterrence. And so this comes up at all these sentencings in federal court. One is the concept of, of specific deterrence. You know, what Will my sentence do to just specifically deter you, this particular defendant individual? And that comes, yeah, and that comes into play when you know you got a, a man or a woman before the court, and perhaps they've, they're there for the second, third, or fourth time. So the idea that we need to specifically deter you by a harsh sentence or a sentence that sort of sends a message to you is is different than the other concept which you were kind of referring to is is called general general deterrence. And the idea behind that is you know what will this sentence do to others who are out there? So you can, make, you can make an argument that in a political case, the concept of general deterrence is important because, you know, there are people who are listening who are taking note that, hey, you know, if I'm a p- politician, I do wrong. Wow. You know, the stakes can be very high. The sentence can be very high. So the concept is, you know, we're going to deter other politicians from engaging in, in similar conduct. Whether that's really true or not is another question, but that's a valid, you know, sentencing consideration for any judge to make.
0: I was just going to ask, so that is part of a judge's prerogative to use that as a justification for sentencing?
1: Absolutely. You know, we we, we the, the argument comes up a lot in, in all sorts of federal sentencing. And, you know, you're typically finding yourself making the argument that, look, judge, you know, this this case that I have which, you know, we, you know, the run-of-the-mill case is not going to really deter anybody because no one's really paying attention. It's not going to make a splash. You know, the media is not going to pay attention to it. Other criminals certainly aren't going to pay attention to it. But you can make an argument that in a political case, you know, that there maybe is a effect upon others. However, you know, you can also argue that empirically that seems to be rather false because, like we said before, you know, Illinois politicians over decades – don't seem to react to the sentences that other politicians get. So you can make the argument that, you know, there really isn't a lot of validity that, you know, people are going to sit up and take notice and, and guide and govern their conduct based upon the sentence in this case. When you enter
0: a plea agreement, and even if not, let's say you're found guilty and there's a sentence, as a lawyer, as a defense attorney, once a federal judge makes that ruling, can you appeal, like, a sentence for being too harsh, or do you need to appeal the facts of the case instead, like what, or is this the end of it,
1: of this? Well, it's never the end in terms of your possibilities, you know, so, but practically it is. So if if you get a, a sentence in federal court, you know, you really are stuck with it for the most part and you can always appeal it, but we're talking about the reality of whether you can win and get that sentence reduced. Okay. So you're really uh, up against a, a tough odds because you really would have to show that either the federal judge, you know, didn't consider something that they should have considered um, or considered something that's prohibited from them considering and giving out the sentence. So otherwise, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is our federal court of appeals here, they're not going to reduce or take away that sentence unless they feel like the court erred in the process of, of making the sentence in the first place. And so you don't usually have a lot of success in getting the appellate court to reduce a sentence because that's not their job. They're not, their job is not to reweigh the factors that the district court considered. They're really just, they're really just there to decide, Hey, you know, in light of the possible sentences and all the factors were that were before the court, did the court appropriately consider all of the things that go into a sentencing and all the arguments made by the parties Or did they take into account a prohibited factor? Um, And so once in a while, you know, it is true that you might get a sentence reduced uh, or remanded more likely for a new sentencing hearing. Uh, But their job is not to, again, to reweigh what the district court did. Yeah, I, I kind of want to.
0: This is a dumb question, but that's I guess my job and your job is to have smart answers, Mike. Um, and that's and that's the problem because even when you ask me dumb questions, I'm not sure if the answer is, is smart, John. <laughs> well, it sounds smarter coming from you. Um, I know that like when we when we have uh, let's say someone goes to the prison, they say, "Well, they're only going to serve half that time," and I think we're normally talking about like state crimes, right? What about a federal uh, judicial or the federal prison system? Do you get time off for good behavior from a federal prison?
1: Yeah, so it's typically quite different in terms of the result of how much time you actually serve in state court versus federal court. You're right. In many state court cases, you know, it'll look like a, a draconian sentence or a sentence of significance. But when you take into account sometimes a reduction as much as 50 percent, the sentence is far less than it would appear. Federal court's quite different. You know, typically you're going to start with the idea that you're going to serve 85% of that number. And then we now know that because of some changes in the law and some uh, new legislation over the last couple of years, that you're going to start to get more credit in federal court when you're serving that sentence. But, you know, you always look at the number, you know, take off 15% and then indicate to your client that, you know, nowadays there's even really more reason to be optimistic that they may get a uh, a significant additional time off that, but not not the type of 50% stuff that we've been talking about in state court.
0: In a little bit, we're going to talk about this incredibly rare thing that happened in a case that you worked on that went in yours and your clients' favors. Uh, but I also want to, and I know you've look, you're probably one of the only attorneys out there that have obtained at least six or more complete not guilty jury verdicts on all counts of federal crime. But I know that obviously some cases haven't gone your way. Have you ever worked your way through the appeals process and had success? I know it's such an uphill climb, and I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit. I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, I mean, typically you know that it, that it's a tough uphill battle. I mean, you're, you're typically better off if, if the, in terms of your possibilities on appeal for, in terms of just having issues to raise, if you went to trial, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities for legal error to occur, from the jury selection process through evidentiary rulings to pretrial rulings. At least you have a whole bunch of different buckets to choose from in terms of raising issues that you claim are error. It doesn't mean that you're going to be successful, but there's, there's more things to argue about on mm-hmm. appeal in terms of what the court you claim did wrong. Um, when you have a situation where your client has pled guilty, like we said, you know the the avenues for appeal are much narrower. The odds of winning are much narrower because again, the court's just only looking at just a sentence that was giving out rather than a full trial. Now, in terms of you know personal success stories, you know we we have had the outlier case where we did get um, a case where it went up to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in, in a federal criminal appeal, and you know we had. We had a multi-defendant case, and luckily, you know, it was it was reversed. It was reversed wow. and remanded, and uh, you know, two of the defendants ended up essentially walking. So that was great, but that's also unique. I have to admit, you know, you said I've had success at trial; it's true, and you, and you want to win them at trial because you know that as you as you go up, it's going to be more difficult to win.
0: Yeah. I wasn't calling you out for a lack of appeal. Success, Mike Leonard. You even oh, one, yeah, I think, is huge. Yeah, Of course, I, I, I mean, win
1: those, too, John, regularly. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Every time, no matter what. No, <laughs> uh, obviously. But uh, tell you what, Mike, we're going to take a break for news, but afterwards I want to talk about that really unique case. We're talking with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers, leonardtriallawyers.com. Trust me, he's the guy you want on your side. I've got his number in my
1: phone, just in case. hope you don't need it, John, no, but I, I'm here for you. I you know, do. I, you're just
0: one of the ones I've definitely saved. 312-815-6572. More with Mike Leonard. But first, let's take a break for the news here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. Very happy Saturday afternoon. Hey, it's our first Saturday in meteorological summer, which is a tough word to say. Obviously, the solstice is still a couple weeks away, but it's our first meteorological summer Saturday in Chicago. And Mike Leonard continued our conversation from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And uh, Mike, we didn't get a chance to talk about this even a couple weeks ago with Judge Paul Meyer, but there was a Big news last month in May on a case you worked on that something that very rarely happens, if ever, happened. Want to explain what happened?
1: Yeah, it's definitely something that's that's never happened to me, and in, uh, almost any lawyer who practices in, in federal court in, in terms of criminal cases, it rarely, if ever, happens to them. So in this case, the the government, the federal prosecutors, moved the court to dismiss with prejudice, meaning gone forever all charges against all four defendants. So what that means is four defendants who were indicted by a grand jury who were charged with federal crimes that the government was filing a motion with the court to dismiss all the charges against each of the defendants. So that's kind of a lightning bolt situation. And uh, do you want to talk about how it occurred, John? Yeah, because it was in the middle of questioning, wasn't it? Yeah, so what happened was, you know, in a lot of these cases— um, more so in state court, but oftentimes in federal court, you might have the basis for what's called a motion to suppress evidence, meaning that you're arguing that the search or the manner of the search that was conducted by the federal agents was improper, that it was conducted without consent, or there was some other error, you know, done. So in our case, you know, one of the big issues was the search. There was four defendants who were ultimately charged with federal drug crimes, but one of the underlying issues in the case was whether the search in the first instance was legally appropriate. And what happened was a bunch of DEA agents went out and they, they first were able to get, you know, sort of a GPS surveillance on, on a vehicle or two. And then ultimately what they did was they, they essentially burst or busted into a house and uh, then, you know, found what they claimed was contraband and the defendants were charged. So All the defendants, including me on behalf of my client, we filed what are called motions to suppress, arguing that the search done by the DEA was improper. And so we had a a two-day evidentiary hearing, and you're probably familiar with that, John. So, you know, you go in, and it's like a mini trial. You're not a trial. There's no jury, but the judge is the one hearing the evidence. And what the government does is they bring in their DEA, DEA, DEA agents or whoever the agents are involved, and, you know, they're put on the stand they're questioned by the government, you know, a direct examination, and the defense attorneys get a chance to cross-examine them. Mm-hmm. And so, and you're just trying you know, to determine, over,
0: and you're trying to determine whether the evidence was collected properly. You're trying to argue, no, it wasn't. The government's trying to say, yes, it was. This should be allowed once we get to the the trial eventually.
1: Exactly, because you know, if, if you if you are able to knock out the search, if you're able to show yeah. that that was legally improper, then there's you know, then there's no evidence usually, and the case goes away. And so it's an unusual result when you can have a motion to suppress in federal court, and get the search found to be legally improper and get all the evidence knocked out. It's it's very rare, but you know we had two days of hearings. We got to cross examine the DEA agents, and things went you know extraordinarily well. You know on the, on the one hand we were able to prove that the agents admitted that they didn't have consent to go into the house, and you know um, there would have been a third day. Uh, which never happened, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what we would have also established is that, you know, this was one of the coldest days of the year. Not only did they not have consent to go into the house, but they took the female occupant of the house and sort of threw her outside into the cold, kind of like that famous, you know, CPD case recently. And Jeanette Young, Um, yeah. Yeah, so we were able to establish that the search was improper. There was no consent. But the really um, big issue in the case came uh, very explosive on the second day, where one of the DEA agents testified and, you know, it was one of these guys who um, I, would, I would argue was a little bit two-faced, you know, kind of trying to portray himself as this nice guy. Uh, but during the course of his testimony, you know, kind of put out there um, this, this race-based reason for part of his investigation. And, you know, the court kind of, you know, exploded in terms of the attorneys attacking him on cross-examination him yelling back at the lawyers that he's not a racist, and it was really quite dramatic. You know, you don't, you don't. You know, despite what you see on TV, you don't always have these moments of drama in a courtroom that you right. had this day. But what it left was was a clear inference that, you know, part of his investigatory decisions were based upon race. Right. Well, can and I read? So, I, have the know, quote,
0: I have the quote that he said, Mike. Here that I wanted to read. Yeah, so sure. he's on the stand, and you're, you know, cross examining him. Uh, and he says the fact of the matter is that the drugs come up from Mexico or come in from Colombia, but they come through Latino countries into cities throughout the u s, and therefore they're typically trafficked by Latino people. So all of that, when you put all of that together, it indicated a narcotics transaction to me, which immediately to me, I, I say, that sounds like profiling,
1: yeah, and that that's exactly what it was because the story didn't go in the quote you read didn't go quite far enough because, The context of that cross-examination was, why did this particular agent and his group, why did they all of a sudden uh, come up and search a car? And so the underlying premise of why they searched um, was based upon the fact that you had someone who was Mexican who was, you know, interacting with someone who was African-American, meaning that, hey, you know, the inference was, if I see someone who's Mexican, interacting with an African-American in Chicago, it's got to be because they're dealing drugs to each other. That Mm. was the inference left by his testimony, which, of course, was, you know, evidence of profiling. And so, you know, we all believed that that was a huge issue for uh, the DEA and the federal prosecutors after that testimony came out. And what was really striking is the judge, you know, questioned the agent himself very extensively and asked him a lot of questions about the concept you just got into, you know, whether racial profiling was the underpinning for why, you know, they made the the bust of the car and why they were tracking these individuals, one who was Mexican one who was African-American. And so, you know, we all believe that, you know, not only was the agent's admission that they didn't have the consent to go in the House part of their government's reasons to dismiss the case, but more importantly, this explosive race-based testimony from the DEA agent, you know, we all believe that was why the government filed a motion with the court to dismiss the entire case, which is just unheard of.
0: Yeah. I mean, when that was being read out loud, I mean, do the hairs on the back of your neck stand up like when things like that happen? Are are your courtroom spidey senses going off?
1: (laughs) All the senses are moving. Well, first of all, when when we're at the hearing and this race-based testimony came out, I mean, it was explosive in that courtroom. I mean, the the cross-examinations of the agents were intense the judge's questioning of the agents were intense because the agent knew exactly what was going on. He knew why the court was questioning him. Um, and so it, w- it was really an explosive environment. And then, you know, the interesting thing was then what happened was we were going to go back for day three of the hearings. There was a couple week lag in between the two hearings we had in the last hearing. And so I was just sitting at my desk one day and, you know, what you do is you get these orders from the federal court that just come across the system. You know, so I got... On my computer saying motion filed by the u.s government to dismiss all charges and i kind of you know did a triple take mm-hmm. opened the document kept thinking i'm, I'm misreading this you know w- w- what's going on here the government is dismissing all the counts and all the charges against every defendant in the case and i, I had to read it about two or three times and then called up my co you know my co-counsel on the case and some with some of the other lawyers involved and you know Started celebrating, but I just wanted to make sure I wasn't losing my mind. Right, so it, was, it was quite a day. So you were
0: sure. you were waiting, maybe anticipating the judge would not allow the evidence in in court, which effect, essentially would have led to this. But the uh, the government sensing that maybe that's the way it was going to save face, went ahead and proactively did this.
1: Oh yeah, I think clearly the the U.S. Attorney's Office, the of federal prosecutors of Chicago knew that they were going to lose that motion, okay, which would be egg on their face. But more importantly, and really probably of, of greater significance to them beyond this case, was what happens when a judge issues a written opinion and calls into the question the credibility of a DEA agent right. or agents. That, that, that goes with them through their career. So the particular agent that testified, it was actually retired. So, you know, but he could still be called as witnesses in numerous other, other cases, cases right. going forward, Right. But it's not just him. You have the other agents who testified, too. And so, you know, there would be this stain upon their credibility if the judge issued a ruling finding that not only did we win and the motion is suppressed, but calling into the question the credibility of these agents. So I think that was the overarching consideration for the U.S. Attorney's Office and moving to dismiss the case. Makes sense.
0: Mike Leonard, we've got to take a break. i got one question that's really important, kind of based on this, and we'll get to that after the break. We're talking with Mike Leonard from LeonardTrialLawyers.com after this on WGN. Mike Leonard, who is a nationally recognized go-to trial lawyer, uh, from Leonard Trial Lawyers I'm just am running out of ways to introduce you Mike It's uh, You got an impressive resume my friend He's a fighter for everybody against the man That's my best description of you Alright Mike we were talking about this case Where the feds dropped a case Essentially that you were working on uh, Because a DEA agent essentially Said that evidence that was Seized against the defendants That you were representing uh, Had been done so th- essentially through racial Profiling and that was the reason they Did a search and that led to the charges Okay, so I know people listening will be like, well, you know, if they if they're drug dealers or they had drugs, whatever it be, they should be in jail. But I think what we need to make sure to reiterate to people is the principle of search and seizure and uh, what the government can or can't do is something that matters to
1: all of us. Of course. I mean, just think about it. Think about it in a rather simplistic way. I mean, would you be comfortable Would any listener be comfortable if uh, two or four or eight D agents showed up at their house? kicked their door open, kicked their door in, took one of the spouses, threw them outside, and then just ransacked the house until they found contraband. I don't think anyone would be comfortable with that. No, And they'd probably have a, uh, be on the local news and want to file a civil rights case. So the the concept, you know, the constitutional concept of of unlawful searches, searches and seizures goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And of course, your house is your castle. And, you know, the idea that federal agents can just Break into your home whenever they want, and if they find something, then charge you with a crime. I don't think most people would agree as applied to them that that makes a lot of sense.
0: No, I agree with that, and I feel like that is you know we have a lot of defense attorneys on this show, and we'll sometimes we'll get texts from people, but you got to lock up the bad guys, and uh, you know, and I'm not disparaging any of the client. I'm just saying, just in general, that's what people will say, and it's like, I mean, defense attorneys play such an important role in making this system work for everyone.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the idea of the search is it's got to be constitutional. So uh, I don't think many of your listeners would be willing to give up their constitutional rights against unlawful searches and seizures um, on a carte, you know, carte blanche basis. You know, so the idea that, well, if they find something, then it makes it all OK. We, we know that's not the law. We know that's not the underpinning of our Constitution. So that's, that's the fundamental problem with, with that argument.
0: For sure. Hey, we got about a minute left. Who? Uh, I mean, I want people to save this number in their phone: three one two eight one five sixty five seventy two. What sorts of folks should be calling you, Mike?
1: Um, well, I think you know uh, the way I would describe it is you know we do we do two things, and and it's really when people are in trouble. So we typically represent individuals in federal criminal cases. But we also certainly represent individual and state criminal cases as well. But our forte is probably, you know, most known for, you know, taking cases to trial in federal court and winning. Uh, but also on the civil side, you know, a, a part of our practice is also, you know, civil cases where someone who is a whistleblower or who's been retaliated against and has a case against a large company or an employer, you know, we we try those cases as well. So that's kind of our civil practice. So. It's kind of if you're in trouble in either sphere. And, you know, employment cases are oftentimes a lot like criminal cases. That's, the, that's kind of the fun of them.
0: Yeah. And you'll have someone on your side. Trust me. Mike Leonard knows his way around all of this stuff. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. 312-815-6572. Mike, gr- thanks as always for coming on. We'll talk again soon. Really quickly. Any other recommendations for other shark bites that you that you want to get people to go to?
1: Yeah, John, I got a great, a unique one for you, because I know at some point this summer you're going to want to drive down to Kansas City, right? Yes. So I got a great, like, I, I think it's about a, almost a hundred-year-old burger place. It's probably 10 feet by 10 feet, not, not bigger, not much bigger than a, than a prison cell, John. Okay. And, you know, it has the best greasy burgers you're going to experience in your lifetime. It's called Town Topic. You wait in line. I mean, people come there 24 hours a day, simplistic, Great double, triple cheeseburgers, milkshakes, and fries. But you'll be excited about it, John, if you get down to Kansas City. So hopefully there's some listener out there who hear this and say, yeah, you're right, town topic, Kansas City is the place for a trial lawyer or a non-trial lawyer.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's open in 1937. All right, Mike, thanks for your time. All right, John, thanks a lot. Take care. All right, let's take a break. Then we got the news next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom on WGN.